I just want to give you a heads up that we are in one of the two or three passages of Scripture that are most explicit about some bodily matters. And uh, so just to, just to tell you that up front and to remind us all that this is the inerrant and fallible Word of God, but uh, just uh, stay tuned. It also is an incredible display, as we shall see, of biblical theology in a way that is fulfilled in and only in Christ. So let's pray together. Our Father, we're just thankful on this beautiful Lord's Day that we can gather together in a place where apart from all the busyness of the world on this day and in this place, we may study your word and seek to find in your word all that you would have for us there. As we will read elsewhere in Scripture, we're looking for treasures old and new. Father, may your word break forth by your spirit in such a way that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we were together last, we were looking at Leviticus 15. And in Leviticus 15, we saw, excuse me, let me restart that. When we were together last, we were in chapters 13 and 14. But in particular, we were looking at the, the sections in Leviticus that have to do with uh, a person who would be found with leprosy, and then the, the orders for how that person was to be cleansed and allowed back into the community, and then the cleaning of a house. And then we saw in the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular looking at that first gospel, in order to see the fulfillment as a leper comes under Jesus, and also what many people do not understand is the direct connection. It is Jesus cleansing the temple, most importantly in the lengthy passage in Matthew. Just as a person would have to cleanse a house after there has been impurity, that's exactly the background to what Jesus is doing, and that is why it's referred to as the cleansing of the temple. It's not just referred to as the driving out of the money changers or etc., it is rightly described as the cleansing of the temple because the background to that is indeed the cleansing of a house. So that's where we left off. Now we are at Leviticus chapter 15. And uh, we're going to look again at the context in just a moment in order to remind ourselves of how we have arrived at what to the modern ear is going to be such an extremely strange passage. I think the best way for us to understand Leviticus chapter 15 is simply to read it and let us hear it, and then we will look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blacked up, his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. 
And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water." And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes, and he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge." If the man has an emission of semen, he shall wash his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days." And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits... When he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, And bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. Lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also, for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. This is the word of the Lord. 
a good number of people who have just a passing familiarity with the Old Testament because of the influence of Scripture in Western civilization, they assume that something like this is to be found in the Bible. Few of them, however, upon hearing it, expected it in such detail. One of the things that we have to watch as we are reading Scripture is that we inevitably read Scripture with 21st century eyes and with certain anticipations, certain expectations that are completely alien to the world of Scripture. Some of this is because of culture. Some of this is because of covenant. Some of this is because of, uh, of the Weltausschung, the, the, the worldview of the age. Part of it is simply practicality. I think for most of us, the most stunning part of this passage is the complete evaporation of a zone of privacy. Privacy simply disappears. And it's also, I think, fair to say that for many of us, it appears that something like modesty disappears. But here's where we need to understand something. In the ancient world in general, but in the ancient world of Israel in particular, modesty and privacy are not the same thing. The Bible exhorts and demands modesty, but privacy is, is largely absent, and that, that comes down even to the conjugal relationship between a husband and a wife. But there's so much more here, because by the time we get to the 15th chapter of the book of Leviticus, one of the things that must now be clear to us is that of all of the responsibilities of life in ancient Israel, of, of God's covenant people just living day by day, just maintaining and abiding by the righteous demands of the law, this would be nearly all-consuming. I mean, how could you do anything else once you consider all the demands of the law? We do think of something like a right to privacy, which, by the way, in the language we use it, was invented by Justice William O. Douglas in the Griswold case having to do with contraception in the 1960s when the Supreme Court, looking for a legal doctrine, simply invented it as a constitutional right to privacy because clearly there was nothing in the Constitution. This is during the, you might say, high watermark of liberal jurisprudence before the Supreme Court. But... The court could get away with it simply because by that time in Western society, most people did assume something like a zone of privacy. Now, why is that zone absent as we look at this text? Well, it's absent, first of all, for a simply practical reason. People lived together in such close proximity that there was virtually no opportunity for privacy. One of the things that anthropologists look at is uh, the increased zone or even the opportunity of privacy in cultures. And, and, and that has to come with several different, uh, well, assets. One of them is just physical space. Another one is a certain socioeconomic level whereby you can secure a private dwelling apart from others and, and then even rooms within that dwelling. The vast majority, well, let's put it this way, unless you were the king, and, 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 and there is no king yet, let's just remind ourselves, that's later in Israel's experience, that's a different story altogether. 
But basically, even by the time you get to the age of the kings, unless you were a king, you lived as a family in one room. One room. The animals were generally in something like a lean-to at the back. The cooking implement was something that was built into the wall and was often filled from the outside of the house. And it was also the only source of warmth. Everyone lived in one room. There was no particular necessity to sit down your pre-adolescent children for the talk. They lived the talk. There was no need for anyone to basically inform anyone of what was going on inside the household because everyone knew it. That to us is nearly unthinkable, but that has been the experience of most human beings throughout human history, period. It takes an enormous amount of wealth. It takes a particular set of social circumstances to spread out. Now, in the flow of Western history, this idea of an increased right or uh, expectation of privacy, it is extremely tied to the development in Western cultures of what is known as the middle class. So the aristocracy could have enough rooms that you could have privacy. The middle class and the emergence of the middle class, particularly after the 16th century, and, uh, and it, it exploded in, in the 16th century in many ways, but it, it, it was really the Victorian era. So let's just say the 19th century was the great century of the development of the middle class in terms of residential patterns. And then that was these residential patterns meant that Mom and dad had a room. Keep it in the room. And, and, and by the way, this was also tied to, which comes to us, and let's just, we just need to be honest about this. It comes to us in a way it doesn't come even to many continental European cultures, and that is a cult of modesty. That, uh, I mean, it, it was really true that in the Victorian era, some people covered the legs of pianos because they thought they were overly sensual. And so they actually created fabric coverings for the legs because of the curve, which might look like something else and might cause sexual arousal. Therefore, we will put pants on our piano. This uh, cult of modesty is something that is built into us. And, and there's, something, there's something about this which does refer to a reticence, a good kind of reticence. The, the, the sexual progressives of the 20th century sought to, first of all, claim a right to privacy in terms of sexual behavior, going all the way up to supposedly a constitutional right to abortion in the Roe v. Wade decision. But at the very same time, um, they sought to tear down the domestic zone of privacy when it came to the issue of sexuality. The rise of the middle class meant that you did have the opportunity for all kinds of privacy. And so you know, the, the idea that you'd have children or teenagers you know, on their own in the house, uh, that, was, uh, that was not imaginable. Now, in this context in which everyone is living together, and remember, it's not just the family that is living in a very tight confine, generally one room, the entire family, and this is an extended family you know, because this is, there is no birth control, and God has told Israel... He's told humanity, remember in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is the first order given to human beings. To Israel, it is given within a covenant context. So, it, so it's not just that Israel is to, is to populate the earth with image bearers. Israel is to populate the earth with covenant keepers. So follow that logic. So Israel's reproductive responsibility 
is greater because they're not only populating with image bearers, but covenant keepers. So, double roll. All right, again, if you're in this one room, you know just about everything. And it's not just that you know the connection between the marital act and uh, children, the coming of children. It's just everybody knows what everybody's secreting. It's just the way it was. You look at Leviticus chapter 15, and it seems so alien to us, so alien. And one of the temptations is to say, well, this, uh, th- this will feel much better for us when we live in a three-room ranch. But all the theological issues remain. This actually leads us to yearn for the fulfillment of the law in Christ, as we shall see. Let's look at the text. I want us to just know ahead of time that as we read the text, we were reading what is known as a chiasmus. That's a Greek rhetorical structure. You can think of it this way. It's A, B, C, B, A. So, in other words, the statements that are at the beginning of the end are parallel. The statements closer in are parallel, and then there's a center. So we're, we're going to follow here. And just, just give you the code. It, it, it begins with uh, ongoing emissions first. Then it gets to regular emissions. Then central statement, and as it begins with the man, so with the woman, regular emissions, and then ongoing emissions. So A, B, C, B, A. And, uh, and that would be, we find this in Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New. It is meant to get attention the same way that someone uh, speaking says, I have three points, you know, to my address today or three points to my sermon. So people will anticipate their ears would have been ready for A, B, C, B, A. So here, A. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, oh, no, wait just a minute. Oh, don't pass by that. Don't pass, pass by that. Don't pass by that. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Elsewhere, it is often the Lord spoke to Moses. So what does it tell us when the Lord is speaking to Moses and to Aaron? It tells us that this is particularly about instructions for the priests. The priests have a responsibility here. They're going to have to know this. The Lord speaks this to Moses and to Aaron. The priests have a particular responsibility. Now, as we are going to see, the background to this is Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons who were killed because of their lack of attentiveness to the law, You think Aaron is hearing this? The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, so here's A, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And then he goes on, as we heard, the law of the uncleanness or discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blacked up. The body is the penis. There is a reticence in uh, the Old Testament to use direct references to genitalia. They're they're actually quite easy, though, to recognize. This is the body, it's all that needs to be said. Uh, In the same way, A, B, C, B, A. When we get to the woman, her physical genitalia will be referred to merely as the body. And so we we saw in Exodus that sometimes the word feet uh, becomes a uh, a Hebrew euphemism. Uh, In this case, this, this is the body. There's, there's no doubt what is being discussed here. 
And th this is an ongoing discharge. Now, we're not going to go into medicine here, infectious disease. For one thing, that's not my competence. But it is easy to understand that the first reference to some discharge like this would be associated with the infection known as gonorrhea, uh, which is a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, but there could be other things as well that could cause this, including some kidney problems that could lead to a discharge. But the point is, the man has a discharge. It is not semen. Uh, it, it is a discharge probably in urine or periodically elsewhere. The point is, people know it. He knows it. It renders him unclean. Now, behind this is the understanding that holiness, starting with an H, and wholeness, starting with a W, go together. The animal that is to be brought for the sacrifice is to be without spot or blemish. So holiness and wholeness go together. So a problem that actually causes something to get out of the body, and, and, and this is an ancient wisdom, you, you just, just for a moment, it's just like the ancient Greek philosophers uh, or, or physicians, as they were known, had a very good piece of advice, which is if, someone's try, if something's trying to get out of your body, let it. Even the ancients got to that. No matter how it's trying to get out, let it out. Your body is trying to get rid of something that is trying to kill you. Therefore, let it out. But these emissions that come out of the body render one unclean. And in this case, this would be the, the emission that would happen to a male and is not a nocturnal emission or a seminal emission and is not intercourse. Well, you see what it says here. Every, every bed here is, is unclean. Everything in which he sits shall be unclean. There's a, a fascinating Hebrew you know, expression in here, which is everything under him is unclean. So yeah, you can get the under. We call it underwear. Everything under him, if he has such a discharge, is unclean. Anyone who sits where he sat is unclean. Now, now how unclean? So what, what is, the, what is the, the, the demand here? He shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, be unclean until the evening. If you touch it, then you're clean un un until the evening. So that, that is not an overly onerous uh, uh, demand. It's, it's not like the demand. You're not talking about a week. You're not talking about, uh, you know, uh, seven or eight days, as is the case. Now that you're, you're talking about just until the evening. The weirdest part of this is verse 8. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Now, here's, here's the thing. There are several references in Scripture to spitting as an act of hostility. And uh, it's an act of, ult of ultimate disrespect. I think we can all understand that. Uh, that is probably not what's referenced here. This is probably just a, the, the, a, an even accidental exchange of saliva. It tells you something, by the way. It tells you that millennia before the development of germ theory People were smart enough to figure out that there was a connection. And in this case, God's mercy is extended to Israel to say that, you know, their contamination can come by spit. Therefore, there is also to be a cleansing in that case. By the time you get down to verse 12, it's a long passage. Even earthenware vessels that are touched by the person who has the discharge, they are unclean. Now, again, you say, well, what if a person wants to keep this private? If you're living in one room and, and everybody sees everybody, under every condition, there are also no bathrooms, so every, everyone sees everyone under all conditions, 
then uh, this, is, uh, this is something that would be known. This is a, a lamentable context here, this kind of permanent discharge. This is not the normal functioning of the body. One of the things we see is that the, the holiness code in the Old Testament, the Levitical law says, you know, if this is not the normal function of the body, it takes on a higher significance of offense to God, of, of being unholy. And the person here, of course, is cut off from worship. Okay, in verses 13 and following, you see how the cleansing is to take place in fresh water. And then a sacrifice, two turtle doves or two pigeons, and there is to be a sin offering and a burnt offering. Now, again, as we follow through all of this early in the book of Leviticus, that is a rather minor infraction. It is a minor sacrifice for a minor infraction, but still it must be done in order to meet the righteous demands of the law. So no matter how many times this might happen, the same cycle of cleansing and, uh, and the end of the, uh, of the unwholeness, uh, this must be taken care of by sacrifice for the unwholeness to be remedied and for holiness uh, to be imparted. And again, it will be temporary. Now in verse uh, 16, this is B. So A was ongoing discharge. B is a regular discharge. So here, here comes B. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall wash his whole body in water and be unclean until the evening. And uh, so this is what we would call a, a, a nocturnal emission or an emission of semen. There is no moral context ascribed to it. So that's just important to recognize. There's no moral context. This is, this is not pointing to any act this is just merely, it happened. And, uh, and yet, there is an uncleanness. The uncleanness is that the semen is on him and, and on his bedclothes or on his clothing, and there must be a ritual washing, and attention must be paid to this. And, and you'll notice that in the sense we are thinking, here comes, here comes an issue. Here comes an issue. Where is the conscious sin here? And, and there isn't any that is necessitated or implied by the text. In one sense, this is a normal bodily function. And yet, there is an uncleanness from a normal bodily function. You have a, an adolescent male who starts uh, you know, having seminal emissions. There is no sin there. There's puberty there. But the, the uncleanness is still there and must be dealt with. And of course, it continues through the life cycle uh, for the man. There is no moral judgment here simply about the emission of semen, not in this context. But nonetheless, there is an uncleanness that must be remedied. And again, it is not a major uncleanness. It is not a major sin since it, there is a sin offering and there's a burnt offering. But you'll notice it, 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 is, it is not something that, uh, that, that creates a major burden in terms of someone's return to the, the life of Israel. And you notice here that, uh, that there is, with this regular mission, actually no sacrifice. So there's no, there's no particular sacrifice necessary. There is an uncleanness, and, and there is to be a washing, but they're unclean until the evening. Now, unclean can mean many different things. It, it can mean many different things, just in terms of, well, let's put it this way. I mean, it does mean many things, different things. And so it might mean uh, having to separate in physical space from someone. 
And, and we're not used to that. Just remember all that we've read in Leviticus. We're just, we're just not used to that. We don't think of someone having to be a certain distance from someone, uh, but that, that, could well be, uh, that could well be required. You put this together with the code that you find in Deuter- Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomos, and, uh, and there could be someone who had to be outside the tent. And so you could have a you could have a male sitting outside, you know, unable to go inside the tent for a certain amount of time simply because of this. Though that's one thing. What comes next in, in verse 18 is actually more interesting, just in terms of what surprises us. Uh, this is C. So A, long-term discharge. Uh, B, short-term, regular discharge. And then C, is the man and the woman together. So man, man, now man, woman. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. Now, here's the thing to note, and we don't need to go any further into this. This is the normal act of conjugal intercourse between a man and a woman in which there's an emission of semen. Both are unclean until the evening they shall wash. In other words, there's no sin implied in this. And the husband and the wife, there is no sin implied in this. And God told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God created the institution of marriage and gave the gift of sex as both procreative and unitive. And, and, but there still must be a washing because there has been an emission. Israel cannot obey the first command that is given in Scripture to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth without doing this, which still brings about an uncleanness that must be remedied by washing. So just, just hold on to that logic. Verse 19, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge of her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And then going on down, we won't, go, we won't read the entire text again, but uh, the, so she is unclean. What comes out of her is unclean. She must be washed in order for the uncleanness to be washed away. Everything that she has touched, or certainly that might be marked with her blood, is also unclean and must be cleansed. And uh, and, and this is the this is the the process. As we saw, there's a difference in the time required uh, for men and for women. In the case of, uh, of the, the, this impurity, it again is, is however, uh, one who touches, you know, shall be unclean uh, until evening. The woman with the uh, menstrual impurity is for seven days. So A, B, both men. A, long-term discharge. B, short-term discharge. Man and union, man and woman in union together. And then a, B, C, B, woman with a short-term regular discharge. So like the seminal emission for a man, this is menstruation for a woman. That leads to the fact that there will be A at the end of that chiasmic structure. And that comes in verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue an uncleanness. This, this points to any number of hemorrhagic phenomena that may occur to women. It clearly is a discharge of blood, and uh, there could be many physi- physiological, I should simply say, many gynecological explanations for this. 
But the point is that the holiness requires wholeness points to the fact that as with a leper, with leprosy or another skin disease or any number of issues, a man, as we shall see in another case, with, with crushed testicles, where there is a lack of wholeness, there is a, a, a lack that has covenant consequences in the worship and in the gathering of God's covenant people. In this case, this ongoing hemorrhagic problem will set a woman apart for as long as the discharge shall last. And after that, there's a process of cleaning. And by the way, it's extremely similar once it ends to the instructions given to menstruation. And so this is not a permanent separation of either a man or a woman. It is for a period of time insofar as the discharge ends and the, uh, the cleansing takes place, there is full reentry into the life of Israel. This is not a prison sentence. This is a matter of ritual, physical impurity. But you say, well, there has to be one other context. And yes, there is. There's one other context. And that is when a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, uh, come together in terms of sex. And uh, her menstrual impurity ends up on him. Well, then as you saw, they are both to wash, and they are both unclean until evening. Well, you say, okay, that kind of makes sense. I can do the math on that. Well, do the math on idolatry, because here's something to watch. In the background is Canaanite fertility religion with idolatry that ritualized sex. So Israel here is given a law that is the direct refutation of Canaanite idolatry. In Canaanite idolatry, the ritual intercourse was a part of the worship. In Israel, you are actually cut off from any ability to, to, uh, to, to go to the tent of meeting or to approach the tent of meeting or even to be with Israel uh, once this had happened. So it makes it impossible for a law-abiding man in Israel uh, to, uh, to confuse, uh, women too for this matter, but uh, for a man or a woman, to confuse the Canaanite fertility cult with the worship of Yahweh. God has made that impossible. Rather than uh, having sex as a part of the religious ritual, if, even if a man and a woman quite legitimately, even following God's command, come together in the unitive act of marriage, uh, they are then until evening and until the washing, uh, they are not to enter the tent of meeting. They are, they, are, they are basically in a zone of being cut off from the people for a short amount of time. Now again, just we stop here for a moment. Oh my goodness, look at... So everybody knows this. I, 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 I can see, I'm watching your faces. This is absolutely shocking because you think every single day you're going to know basically who's done what with whom. And you're going to know, you know, when, uh, when there's been a seminal omission, you're going to know who's menstruating. And this, this to us, this to us is, uh, is, is, is shocking beyond words. But that says more about our time than about this time. The, and this is the same culture that calls for women to dress modestly and, and, and for people to act modestly. So what does modesty mean in this context? It means not being... Sexual, not seeking to arouse sexually 
in an illegitimate way. And by the way, almost every presentation, almost every presentation of immodesty in the Bible is something that is clearly sexually suggestive. Now, in every culture, this can change. So one of the things we have to note is that in the ancient world, feet were not only often euphemisms for the, the organs of reproduction, feet were understood themselves to be highly sensual, uh, shocking. And, uh, and so you see references to this as well. It, it's a part of the shock of the disciples when Jesus allowed his feet to be washed uh, or when Jesus washed their feet. It's just a part of the, uh, it's a part of the shock of the, of the background. It's not implying anything sexual. It's just indicating that uh, he's, they're treating and being treated as members of the family because inside the family to have your feet washed would not be considered in any way an immodest act. So again, there's nothing, there's, everything there is simply to say, this is, we're family now. The, the intimacy, there is no earthly intimacy uh, closer than the intimacy of, uh, of the Lord with his disciples or of, uh, or of the church, basically. This is why you have foot-washing Baptists. We are not among the foot-washing Baptists. But there, uh, there was a, an actual denominational group known as the foot-washing Baptists who believed that foot-washing was the third ordinance. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and foot-washing. All right. You'll notice, by the way, again, I'll just make reference to this, every, everything has to be broken, you know, whether it's a, it's a, if it's a clay pot, it has to be broken. Uh, and, and by the way, if you just think about, uh, if, if there were an infectious disease, that would make perfect sense. Uh, but even as when you look at the dietary law or many of the hygienic laws given to Israel to set them apart, then you can say, well, we understand there's a hygienic purpose here, and that, that makes the law make more sense. And then you don't find it with another law, and you say, well, now that one doesn't make sense. No, it makes sense because God has ordered this. It is for Israel's good and for his glory. And whether we can infer some kind of hygienic purpose or anti-infectious purpose, the reality is it's just all for the glory of God. Now, notice something else. Notice verse 31. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness, by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. That's the central verse of the entire chapter right there. Verse 31. It's all about the people of Israel not being unclean. Thus they shall be separate. The word separate, which again points to the holiness to which they are called. Now, very quickly here, very quickly. The context of all of these chapters follows the death of Nadab and Abihu, in which God's own house was desecrated by this act of unlawful sacrifice. The chapters in between, the, the chapters that will conclude with this chapter today are about how cleansing can come in the aftermath. But notice something else. Sacrifice is required even where sin has not happened. And you say, well, why? It is because even in the conjugal act of a husband and a wife, where there's an emission of semen. And after all, that's the point. That's the point to even be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What you have to see here is that if there is in any sense an unwholeness, even the, the, the semen going out, understood to be the life, the potential life going out, then the seriousness of this means even that which is not sin as the violation of the law, even certain obedience to the law 
invokes a seriousness that requires a cleansing. Now, that kind of helps us to understand this, right? So even, even obedience to the law on something of such gravity can require a cleansing. Okay. Now, what do we do with this? Very quickly, turn to Mark chapter 5. Look at Mark chapter 5, we're going to, for the sake of time, we're going to begin with the last part of verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his garments, his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The entire background to that is what we just read. As we saw, the background, even in the leper, is, is, is revealed in the Gospel of Matthew. When the leper presents himself to Jesus, Jesus healed him and said, now go show yourself to the priest. It's following the Levitical law. And, and go show yourself to the priest. You are well. And then Jesus we saw, we're given instructions in Leviticus about cleaning the house when there has been sin or impurity. And Jesus cleansed his father's house, saying, this shall be a house of prayer. And now we come to Leviticus chapter 15, and we fast forward to Mark chapter 5. This woman has been cut off from her people for 12 years because of this discharge. She looks to Jesus not for instruction, but for healing. And she says, even if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And she was healed. And that means for her not just the end of the hemorrhage, but it means her restoration to God's covenant, community, fellowship, acceptance, wholeness. When Israel read Leviticus chapter 15, and when they heard it, when it was given basically in repetition in the book of Deuteronomy, it came to them as instruction about how they could survive as God's covenant people in a world in which there was no earthly reason why Israel should survive. And they were set apart, therefore you shall be separate. And, and their separateness was a set of codes and, and of instructions that were given to no other people. And so for Israel, it was daily, all of, these, all of these things, everyday life. And it was not just their sin, it was also just their life, the ordinary acts of life and biological processes that required cleansing. Leviticus chapter 15 makes us yearn for Christ. Because it is not that God just said about all this in Leviticus 15 to us, never mind. Instead, the Bible makes very clear it is all fulfilled in Christ. We are all here because we have touched his garment. We are all here because we've been healed. Most importantly, 
of our sin. So as you look at this, you recognize this sets Israel apart. It is a shocking chapter intended to shock. No doubt it shocked Israel, but it didn't shock Israel with a sense of the privacy that we come with as an expectation. But it shocked Israel because Israel immediately had to understand the, the difference between wholeness and unholiness, the difference between holiness and unholiness, this is going to be a constant daily preoccupation. And furthermore, you can begin the morning thinking that you are in wholeness only to be to find out you're not in wholeness at all. And now you're cut off, and now you're unclean, and you're unclean until this ends. And everybody knows it. We are here by the grace and to the glory of God. But we are here without these concerns. Frankly, a part of the shock this morning is for you to know that God's people, covenant people, ever had these concerns. We do not have these particular concerns because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson spot. He washed it white as snow. You say, what has Jesus done for you? you think of John 3, 16. We don't fail to think of Leviticus 15. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Father, thank you for this chapter in all of its shocking power. Father, may we be instructed by it, yes, shocked by it, and drawn to Christ by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.